Uh, this is not Will. A couple days after World 2007 took place. And some comments about what happened over the coverage. I was quite happy to see how much effort Rich Hagen, Brian David Marshall, and Randy Bueller put into coverage issues. They, in my opinion, hit about the right number we want for tournament coverage sequences. Pretty close to it. They did a really nice um, commentary, albeit many, many technical problems that they were working on the course of the weekend. There was a lot of things that they did much better than they did the last few pro tours with the, with the cover, with tournament coverage. I think they did a much better job of getting to the nuts and bolts of a lot of issues and a lot of interesting stories. Uh, Hagen, I think, has finally figured out he needs to do a better job of getting the side stories going and some interesting stuff from from the side discussions of what's happening to give a better feel for the event. Uh, a much better job than he did last year. Over 2006 with it. He's gotten better at that. Might want to check one of my previous podcasts for some commentary on how much I disliked his efforts at getting the side stories compared to Becker. But, anyways. Uh, Bueller and BDM did a much better job of recording tournament coverage releases. I still would like to be able to download them, though, via iTunes, but apparently they don't want to do that or make them downloadable after the fact on their website. No, but they're leaving it out there solely for YouTube to provide for everyone to, to watch. And while YouTube does an outstanding service, and I think is a very valuable resource in the world, I still would like to have better quality for purposes of, you know, making my own DVDs, but I'm being selfish about that. However, the one thing I'm surprised it did not mention during any of the coverage was, yes, the last time the Pro Tour was in New York, it happened to be the weekend prior to September 11, 2001, when terrorists took down the World Trade Center. There was virtually no mention of the fact that 9-11 happened the Tuesday after the end of the last pro tour that took place in New York. And I was expecting at least a five-minute uh, you know, remembrance or something talking about that fact, talking about how that affected the world, how it impacted some of the players at the event. Um, like we know, for instance, a couple of the Magic players used to live or work near downtown at the Trade Center, like Pakula, David Price. They used to live near or work down at, and it affected their lives considerably. It affected many of the Magic players who tried to leave by the, like Carson, who got tied up in an airport for a couple of days, waiting to get out of town. You know, or it's just a general impact. You would think that that disaster, after all these years, it would be mentioned or had reference to since it's back to the Pro Tour back being in New York. And I was expecting at least some kind of reference to that during that time frame. That didn't happen. So, uh, I guess maybe they didn't want to touch that topic. Maybe they're tired of that topic because they live in New York or specifically BDM, but I still thought it would have been a nice thing to mention, anyways. Now, the other piece about the coverage that I did not like about Worlds was they didn't even intend to or attempt to broadcast the quarterfinals live. They literally set it up so the, trans- so the broadcast would begin at the time of the team event being played. No team event draft coverage. No quarterfinal play of single round coverage. 
I don't know what the deal was. It's like the previous year they had a 13-year, or 13-hour session, which is the longest we've ever had. And I guess they wanted to trail it back to put it back into like a five-hour work week or something. That doesn't make any sense to a five-hour broadcast or a six-hour broadcast. So they cut off like half of the stuff we normally get to see out of Worlds on the live broadcast, which was kind of disappointing. And I know a lot of people, a lot of people bitched about it on the Watsi forum when it was pointed out what they did because there was no mention of it happening beforehand. They just did it, basically, and blindsided us with that decision. Nonetheless, I wasn't really thrilled knowing that when it happened. I also like at this point some more topics I wanted to cover. You might have noticed an upgrade in sound quality. Last episode was the first episode I recorded of my new podcast recorder. This is during the last couple episodes. You've noticed that increase in sound quality. Well, it's also increasing in usability, everything else. And I finally went back and fixed two of the problems that I've had with my previous recordings. And I finally fixed the problem that, that I was experiencing because of them. For one, for whatever reason, I recorded my previous MP3 files for those podcasts in a 24,000 hertz bit rate, which project rate, yeah, 24,000 project rate, hertz, yeah, 24,000 hertz project rate, which seemed okay at the time. I mean, I didn't really know much about audio at that point to that to understand, and it sounded all right on the original website, downloaded fine, but. I always had the things like, well, it's about one meg per one minute of audio. That seems a little bit large, but I didn't know why I could, why it was so large at the time. And on top of that, the second episode came out all scrambled at times for people who downloaded, and I could never figure out why it was doing that for some people, but not all the people. All right. Turned out that the bit rate happens to be a non-standard number that some people support, some people don't, and. I don't know why I got 24,000 through Audacity, but I did. So that's always been that way, and I recorded most of my shows set that way. And then eventually I just got switched over to 22,000, which was a conventional format. It's like 22,050, a basic standard format bitrate, which didn't change the audio size, the file sizes any. It didn't make the sound quality any different, but it made things more compatible. Now, at that, sometime around that same time, we upgraded the website to the new format you look at now. It includes... On top of the odd hertz that I had chosen for my podcast, there was also a case of my default bit rate was set at 128,000 kilobits per second, or 128 kbps. The... Bits per second happen to affect the size of the files, as I've now found out. And really, I was recording in either stereo or mono, poor sound quality, at what effectively was the same bit rate, or close to that, which CDs record music at. And that made no logical sense, especially considering I had no acoustics or sound in the background that made the difference for making use of that kind of bit rate. So... Also, as of episode 37, I went from 37 and before. My, my daughter grabbing paper out of the door. My metal desk. 
from episode 37 and before, I went back and not only changed the hertz on all files to match 2050 as a format, but I also went and got my default sets in Audacity changed and reconfigured to record everything now at 64,000 BPS or half the kilobits of what I was using before. Some podcasts use 48, some I've seen down as low as 32, some I've seen at 64, some at higher and higher than that. In the end, at 64kbps, about one minute's worth of recording comes out to about a half a meg in size. So, making that those two basic changes to every file of mine cut the downloads of each individual file in half of the size they were before. On top of that, one of the complaints I had gotten before was when we switched over to the new website format and had the built-in uh, on-website listening plugin for for podcasts. It was basically as a it was basically a browser add-on that lets you play the podcast directly off the web page, and that makes sense to have one of those for a podcast network, right? That seems logical. However, there was a flaw in the design of the one that we use in that it only uses or only works correctly with 22,050 or 44,100 set hertz files. So all those previously bad hertz ones always would play super fast because they didn't have a matching, quote, standard hertz to what the uh, website player was expecting it. So long story short is I went through there, fixed all the files, all the way through all my podcasts, I re-uploaded fixed versions of all those files, so they all downloaded considerably faster, considerably smaller files. They sound better quality-wise, or as or the same, really. They didn't really no loss of quality, really. And they are now all correctly playable from the actual MTGcast website. And now, with all that done, they sound really good. They come out and play pretty good. They're really fast downloads now because I'm running about half a meg per minute audio. And now they're quite manageable for people like Reese Perry, who still lives in the Stone Age with with old AOL dial-up, for instance, and giving me crap before about making the files too big for him to be able to download. So, and in the end, it makes makes all my podcasts much more friendly for everybody involved. And I'm learning a lot more about Audacity and audio files now at this point that I'm starting to have an understanding of what I should be doing things as. And in the future, it'll help make the quality of these podcasts much better, too, especially now that I have a new audio recording device that makes sound quality a whole lot easier to work with and a lot nicer. The one thing I did know that was this device recorded in, in what they call as MW, I mean, um, WMA audio format, which I believe was Windows Media Audio. However, what I did not know at the time was that Audacity does not read in that format because it is a copyrighted format. So, uh, I went back and took one of the converters I already had installed on my machine called 4U MP4 to converter, made by some company out there. It's a freeware program that I use. That lets me basically what it does is uh, it allows me to convert 
several types of different video files into a common format that I can use for burning other DVDs to make movies from. Because I like to make DVD movies out of all the magic, uh, the magic broadcasts and uh, proton coverage and whatnot. So, anyways, it, long story short, with that being is that that converter allows me to take this WMA file, convert it over to allows me to take those files of the WMA format and it will read it in and convert it over to uh, another format file that I can read in with Audacity without losing anything. As far as I can tell, it doesn't actually lose any quality, but I could be wrong. Um, however, it makes it simple because it allows me to record on this device. I plug my device in directly into the, into the USB port, bring it up like a hard drive, load up file with the converter, save it off as another format, close everything, bring up Audacity, save it off as a WAV file, close Audacity, open it up, save it off, reload the WAV file, save it off as an, MP, as an MP3 file in the format and bit hertz and setting I want by default at that point. The reason I have to load it up and save it off as a WAV file is because if I take the file it's being converted from, it comes up as a, uh, a 48,000 hertz uh, MP3 file, which doesn't quite work for the standards I need, and it comes out at like 192 kilobits, 100, yeah, 192 kilobits per second, which is like a mega and a half per minute. So, anyways, so I do a couple conversions, and it turns out this file comes out pretty nicely now, at about the size I want it to be, and the hertz setting I want it to be, and it sounds fairly good. Now, probably spent way too long talking about that particular topic. <laughs> anyways. Expect all my future podcasts to be roughly the same quality as this one if it's a solo commentary podcast or if I have one or two people in the room. Now, if it becomes like I'm at a tournament site podcast, uh, I haven't used this device, this, this device for that purpose yet, so that is to be seen. Um, but I'm sure it will come out fine. Oh, yeah, one last brief topic regarding Grand Prix trials. A decision was made sometime last year that Grand Prix trials would no longer be available to buy it to any TO that requests them, and instead was going to be added to a list of assigned t- events that TOs are required to run as part of... Anyways, Laura Kilgore, who works for WASI, she is the tournament, organi- the, the tournament organizing manager for North America, sent me an email some time ago telling me that Grand Prix trials are now only going to be held within 500 miles of a Grand Prix, with a few exceptions. Like, for instance, Salt Lake City uh, previously was actually 800 miles from Denver, so it was close enough that they considered it. Well, recently she emailed me to remind me that Grand Prix trials are now running 500 miles within around the city that is hosting the Grand Prix. Unfortunately, Denver does not fall within the range for any of these events ignoring the fact that Grand Prix Denver will be taking place later. And the event I was asking about was Vancouver and Philly. Says, I would like to have seen us have Grand Prix trials for one or both of those events since there may be a group of us traveling out to those events. Basically, Watsi found out through research that um, with distance reduces the likelihood that the winner will make use of the buys when they get buys for a Grand Prix. I think there's more to it than just that, but yeah, traveling expenses does come into, mind, come into the to factor there. And since 
Vancouver is roughly 1,500 miles from Denver, and Philly is roughly 1,700 miles from Denver. Uh, we won't be getting grammar trials for either of those events. It seems like the 500 miles seems like an arbitrarily, an arbitrary number. Maybe it should be a little bit bigger than that, but still, even then, it would be nice to at least give, given the opportunity, but I guess living in the most remote area of the central western states, Daddy. we got what we have. Well, it's, uh, December 14th, day before, well, Yes, day before the PTQ in Utah, and I'll be driving out of town here oh, about four hours from now, I think, out of the springs, heading up to Boulder, pick up at least Brett, hopefully a third, hopefully another person to make a full car, make things a lot cheaper. But either way, I'll be picking up Paul around noon because that's when he gets off work, and it's a little bit before that. I was reading uh, Brian David Marshall's article this morning. He had an interview with Scott Larrabee, someone who I highly respect and has been around as long as I have. He was one of the original TOs, the one that Watsi hired out of L.A., if I recall correctly, to become the tournament organizer and manager of the Pro Tour. He's since taken on other responsibilities, and, but he still does pretty much manage the Pro Tour, uh, structurally, configuration-wise, etc. And I get to talk to him occasionally. Uh, I had a nice discussion with him at Nationals actually about some questions he's had and he actually responds to some feedback I sent him occasionally but anyways so Brian David Marshall had this article uh, and Brian David Marshall asked Scott Larrabee the following question what if any changes are being made to the pro players club this year and Scott Larrabee said quote we are making two changes the first the level 3 benefit of the $500 appearance fee for attending a Pro Tour or Worlds is being eliminated. And secondly, the rule that allows a player to gain level 3 status for the remainder of the year by having 30 Pro Points over the current year and the previous year is being changed. For 2008, it will be 25 points, but the player must have achieved those 25 points by the end of the second Pro Tour. The first bullet on that list, the elimination of the $500 Appearance fee. Unfortunately, Watsi is a business. Unfortunately, they have to make money. And unfortunately, Hasbro looks at some of their expenses and expenses and questions why it's so much sometimes and maintains that they have to keep within a budget. So either we have to deal with more expensive booster packs again or they have to cut money from being spent on the Pro Tour. That's an awful lot of money they're cutting, though. The $500 for effectively... 100, 150 people who achieve level 3, about that's about $50,000 per pro tour that they're cutting pretty much. Off, off a basic estimate, maybe more than that. I can see the point in needing to cut money. That's a pretty devastating blow, though, to those who achieve level 3 status, because level 3 status gives us, A, the ability to play in all the pro tours, and B, they were paying help the travel expenses by the $500 fee. Now, granted... It's going to cause a slight uproar, especially those who constantly level threes and, and don't work hard enough to get the next level. But they keep acquiring level three because they work at it hard enough. But, but yeah, that, that, that $500 fee may be... That, that reduction of fees is going to reduce the overall turnout of a lot of our tours, I think. And I can understand and appreciate the fact that they need to save money. But that is, that's, a, that's a harmful change that they just made there. 
for the for the purpose of benefit. I suppose once you can acquire it, if you're like me where the money wouldn't matter and you'd go anyways, yeah, and it's not going to affect us, but there's a few people where the money actually does matter, particularly South, in South America and Asia, where without being level 3, it's a lot harder to justify the cost of going to some pro tours. I, I guess... They're trying to trade it off, basically making it so A, it's cheaper, and but B, they're, they're making it so airlines are for 4, 5, and 6. I guess that's one way to go about doing it. But And they specifically cite the airline tickets have become considerably more expensive, but they chose to eliminate the level 3 appearance fee, probably because it was considerably more expensive than airline ticket increases in the end. It could impact the number of people showing up to the Pro Tour. Um, their compensation that they're... they're trying to balance it against is that now they're going to allow people who have level 3 or have not yet acquired well, the people who have level 3 will now be able to basically clock block people at PTQs until they, quote, earn their invite which is the day before the Pro Tour now as opposed to six weeks out before the Pro Tour. I don't know if that's such a good change either. I mean, yeah, it sounds good. It makes it so that certain people can play in the PTQs now if they wanted to, to fight for the free airline ticket, but in the end, we're going to have an area of like in, of the New England area where you have a bunch of people in level three status who will now start playing in the PTQs solely to concede to their friends that who they get paired up against in order to help help them acquire the slot needed to qualify for the Pro Tour. I can especially see that, or I can especially see that happening with some people who are permanently in the Hall of Fame all suddenly showing up to a Pro Tour qualifier to help Joe Blow, who's on their team for testing, get qualified, and they'll knock out like half the competition in the process. And when they get to their friend to be paired up, who's, who's also good enough to be there, they'll, they'll just concede because they know that they're already qualified, they'll bring their friend along, and life gets better that way. I think they could have found a few other ways to save money besides cutting that fee, but... Man, that's just a devastating change. It's, I don't know. I'm sure it's going to cause an uproar over the next week among various pros, especially since they did not announce it until the week after Worlds. Therefore, they didn't want to have a commotion while at Worlds. That seems kind of suspect for timing reasons, but I'm sure, I'm sure it might have mattered. Now, they're also dropping the threshold for level 3 down to 25 points instead of 30 points. For me, that's a great benefit. I think 25 points are much more doable now than it was for 30, especially since I'm going to start hitting uh, some Grand Prix again in the very near future, starting with Vancouver. But even then, it's, it's still, I would like to... I still think they should go back and allow people to get two invite slots at OPTQ, one with and one without the airline ticket, that help get people the, the, the motivation, especially in the U.S., to achieve level 3 status. If they're going to take away the $500 fee from the level three, then you know it doesn't. It would even hurt them even less by doing so at this point. So, just another motivation as to why we should consider doing it. Another question that Brian David Marshall asks is, "What will you provide the level threes to offset the appearance fee?" And Scott Larry responded with a quote: "Level three pro club members will not receive their invite." invitation to the Pro Tour until the day of the Pro Tour. This means that Level 3 players will now be able to play in Pro Tour qualifiers, provided that their only invitation comes from their Level 3 status. For example, if a Level 3 Pro Club member finished top 16 of a, Pro Tour, of a Grand Prix, sorry, of a Grand Prix that feeds a particular Pro Tour, that player is then no longer eligible to, to play in the PTQs. So basically, as long as they don't earn themselves an invite 
while they're level three, they can continue to be the cock blocker in the PTQs. I just some, somehow don't see it making people want to increase. It could increase the number of PTQ players, but it's there for either A, practice, or B, to be to, to, to break up the structure a little bit back like it was back in the mid to, mid to late 90s when they eliminated the ability to qualify people to play in PTQs for specifically because we had such a problem with teams going in there in mass hall to disrupt tournaments and basically be they basically ordered to help fight their people into the top eight as a team. The most famous example of it recently, though, had to have happened two years ago, I think, for Kenji at a Pro Tour. Kenji needed to win out to make top eight at a Pro Tour. All the Japanese players knew that, but because they were all friends with Kenji and all their, they were several players, even though they were other friends that they had to play against, agreed that they had to force people to play instead of conceding or drawing in the last few rounds to help Kenji make top eight. And even though it even hurt some people's personal friendships with a lot of other people they made, and it upset a few of the people in the end who had to do it, but in the end, they did play along for the country, for their teammate, and and, and were true cockwalkers in the tournament. And it causes slight uproar among some people because it disrupted how the natural progression of the Pro Tour should have happened, as well as hurt friendships and hurt some loyalties that people had. And it was nothing that could have been done to avoid it other than them just not doing what they did. I don't know if they'll do it again because of some of the negative lashback they got from it, but this just seems like this policy change by Scott Lerby and, and the rest of the DCI, it basically... It just basically means that um, that likelihood of that happening again in the PTQ circuit is going to be increased. The possibility of it is going to grow. Now, at least they, they, they changed the level threshold down to 25, though they did say that no changes were made to the initial seating. I'm not sure exactly how this gets get changed, but we're going to have to actually watch how it plays out to see what it, see what it ends up looking like. I guess I would also like to add that Part of being a Hall of Famer required you giving you level three status for life. With this change, I think the Hall of Famer should not be negatively impacted by. Instead, I feel the DCI should be considering the idea, or at least consider the idea, of increasing the Hall of Fame status from level three permanently to level four permanently for life. They should be the ones who most benefit from the permanent status. They're the ones that would make sense to, to not just give invites for life, but also some kind of benefit and bonus to want to show up. They're the ones who represent the, the, the historical aspect of the Pro Tour. They're the ones who have represented the best, greatest players in the world, and the ones that the DCI should want to maintain coming to the Pro Tour on a regular basis in order to invigorate or encourage participation by many, many other uh, players throughout the world. And I think increasing the, the, the Hall of Fame status or making them in their own category of their own with benefits would make a lot of sense. I, I don't see the problem with giving a Hall of Famer airline tickets to a pro tour if he decides to want to show up. It, to me, would only make logical sense. And it's not that much more expensive. We're only talking about 15 people right now, five per year. It's not going to grow considerably over time. But, yes, I thought that would be, that would be a nice addition to be added to the, stat, uh, the benefits for the Pro Club and for the Hall of Fame.
Another thing that did not get discussed publicly, or at least not talked about publicly, was that Watsi unilaterally reduced the prize payout at Worlds this year compared to the last previous few Worlds. I don't know why, but particularly on the lower end, like they only paid the top 64 instead of the top 75 like they had in the last few Worlds. And this Worlds actually had a record-breaking number of attendance, too, as part of all their reduced... They're reduced, but or not really reduced budget. I mean, you could have a, you could say they had a reduced budget. It could just be that they just reallocated money, but had the same budget from last year as well. We don't really know the budget numbers. But considering they've done other cool things like give away a car at this world, it kind of makes sense that the money had to go somewhere. And if it was from one single budget, I guess they paid for the car by reducing the overall payout to players. As well as the fact that they gave away a thousand plus free drafts at this year world, this year's worlds as well, and some free entry to other tournaments that generally are pay, that are like twenty bucks each. It was a really bunch of really nice benefits, but they didn't talk about nobody talked about the fact that the overall prize payout for worlds actually got reduced by some amount of money, both total money and the total number of players who get paid in money. So that seems like maybe the budgetary changes are a little bit. Also not talked about, we don't know enough about the budgetary changes. Like, are they going to reduce the number of Grand Prix next year now as a result of it? That's a possibility. Are they, They've done that before in the past. At one point we had 40-some Grand Prix. Last year we had a dozen, and many of those were on the same weekends, which didn't make any sense. I hope the future that all Grand Prix are their own weekends all the time. That way players who want to travel to them will travel to them instead of having to choose between them. That seems kind of silly because... Especially when some people traveled to the U.S. because they, they thought the field would be softer in the U.S. compared to Europe. And it's a European pro making that decision to come to the U.S. solely because they thought it would be a softer field. That's kind of silly. Um, they should be completely separate so there's no clash. And besides that, it gives us more events to actually talk about and more, more strategy to keep, us, keep the buzz going throughout the year if we have more events to talk about over spread over, over the years versus like three in one weekend kind of thing like we've done before. I've also looked at the Players Club list. The Players Club is still going to use the 1 point gets level 1, 10 points get level 2, 20 points get level 3, etc. scale. They're changing it previously in 2006-2007. Between those two years, you combine 30 points, you maintain level 3 as well. They're changing that com- combined point scale to 25 points, but it only includes the first two pro tours of a year, which implies that maybe they're going to eliminate it come this time next year altogether. And there will not be a combined score anymore at that point. Something to consider. I just want to be able to get to the point where I can obtain 20 pro tour points at some point so I can be on level 3 status. Because I think once I achieve that, I would be able to indefinitely maintain that, or at least come very close to maintaining it indefinitely. But I have to do something to at least achieve it.